my life, it's a challenge. Every day I face new decisions, new crucial choices. I recognize what I choose to do today affects my future. I can't afford to waste my time in the dead-end cycle of mediocrity. Good isn't good enough. For me, it's all about best practices. Well, good morning, everybody. And thank you for all you've gone through to be part of New Spring Worship Experience today. Welcome to our fourth weekend service. And I know that so many of you have gone through traffic jams, the challenge of parking, waiting in lines to get your kids checked in. And New Spring is just growing radically. It's the first time in the history of our city we've ever seen anything like this. Over 6,200 people worshiped at New Spring last week. And it's just exciting to watch. I hope you know you guys are making history, but I just want to thank you for all you go through to be part of New Spring. We don't take it lightly. We're working on it. Um, I, I talked to a, a young lady a few moments ago. By the way, hello to all of you who are in overflow. Thank you for, for putting up with us uh, back there. But I talked to a young lady who lives downtown. She said it took her longer to get off the highway to get in the parking lot than it took her to drive from downtown. So I, I'm I, I'm thankful for all you go through to be here, but at the same time, isn't it cool that God is doing something like that where you guys are pumped about being about God, and I'm so thankful that you're here, and trust me, we're working really hard to do everything we can. We do have two services on Saturday night that are the same as they are on Sunday, uh, and as of now, there's still a little more room in those, so if you ever want to move to Saturday night, we have services at 4 o'clock and 5.30, they're all the same, and if you'd ever like to have just a little bit easier experience of getting in and out the campus, We'd like to encourage you to try one of those to see what you think about it, all right? Thanks for being here. Um, let me just jump right into the talk and tell you about a scenario that happened in my life three years ago this coming May. It was one of those nights that we had a 24-hour rain in Wichita, and it, it rained for 24 hours, then it really started raining. And I remember really well, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I had a place that I wanted to go and an appointment that I wanted to keep, but I remember sitting in front of the television set and listening to the meteorologist say, stay home. The floodwaters are high tonight. There's, there's a chance that you could drive into floodwaters. If you, if you, and you know, what, you know what all of our really excellent meteorologists in Kansas say? If you don't have to be out tonight, don't get out. But I really wanted to go to this appointment, and I started watching the radar, and you know, it looked to me like it was lightening up a little bit. It was, it was a lighter shade of red, and I said to myself, I... Don't get ahead of me now. I said to myself, I think it's easing off. I think it's easing off. If I, I got into my beloved 2007 Honda Accord, and Mary Allison, Steve, and I, we started driving. If I had stayed in front of my television set for 10 more minutes, I would have seen that the red was not getting lighter. It was getting darker. It went from orange to red to maroon to dark maroon to the darkest shade of red. Because for two hours, it was going to be as if God was not letting raindrops fall on Wichita. It was like God found this mammoth cosmic bucket and just dumped it out over our city. And I remember being at my parents' house for a couple hours in Bel Air. And, and the rain just came down, and, and it, it came down in torrents. So I said to myself, we finally got ready to leave. By this time, it's dark. I said, I'm going to have to be really careful to make sure that I don't drive into floodwaters. Because I, I was told... By the, by the excellent meteorologist on, on Channel 12, not to get out. But I did anyway. And I knew I was going to have to be careful. So I left my parents' house. I was about a block and a half away from where my parents live, an intersection that I've traveled many, many times before. 
And it's dark now, but I'm looking at water going from one side of the road to the other side of the road, and I can't see the road. And I'm saying to myself, perhaps I should put it in reverse, back up, and look for higher roads, which I knew existed in the area. But then there was that moment when I said, nah, I've been through this intersection many, many times. I can handle this. This is not going to be a problem. And I drove right into it. And, I got in, and very soon I realized the water was far deeper than I realized it was. The water was up to the sides of my doors. And then my engine died. And I thought, well, I need to restart my engine. But my engine would never be restarted again because it was DOA. It was dead on arrival. It was as dead as it could possibly be, along with a whole lot of the electronics in my car. And water was now, you know, coming up higher and higher on the doors. And, and I pray that when I get to heaven, I can finally meet the good Samaritan who did this. Because at this moment, the rain was still coming down in torrents. And beyond that, lightning was striking all over around. And I thought, Man, I, I need to get this car out of this water. But at the same time, I thought, I'd, I hate to get out of my car because lightning is striking. And a good Samaritan drove up in a pickup truck in a side road, saw my plight, jumped out of his truck. I, he only was there long enough to help me push my car out of the deep water into shallower water. And then he waved goodbye and left. And Marilyn and I sat there in the dark. And, and when Marilyn is here somewhere, she can remember it was at least two and a half. I think it was longer than that. But it was at least two and a half hours that we sat in a dark car that now had filled up with some water up above the floorboard you know and we waited for the tow trucks to come but the tow truck was late because after all there were other Wichitans who didn't pay attention who were out in the rain (laughs) whose cars were flooded and we were just down the list and as I said it was my beloved Honda Accord I am you know I've just been me through the years I, I have a I have a soul connection with Hondas and and I loved that car but I didn't love it then I wanted it to go away I never wanted to see it again. The word I wanted to hear was totaled. And I had it towed to Schofield, and they just left, and I came to look at it, and I mean, it was almost as, it is not as bad as the funeral, but in a way, it was kind of a funeral because I had the viewing of my car. <laughs> it was dead. The electronics were shot. It stunk. It smelled awful. And so I'm thinking, I want this car to go away, but they totaled up the repairs, and then it was catastrophic damage. But when they totaled up the repairs, it just so happened that the way my insurance company at the time looked at it, <laughs> it was just below the threshold of total, and they said, it's got to be repaired. And I said, no, it should be total. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten the impression that I'm stubborn from listening to me talk. But if you have, there might be just a smidgen of truth to that. And thankfully, I have so many good friends here at New Spring who are top professionals in their game. I had a friend of mine. He's with the Lord now. But he was a high-powered attorney. He was a constitutional law specialist, First Amendment specialist, tried in numerous cases before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And he heard about my plight. And he said, I am going to help you. He called a mutual friend of ours who was also a New Springer, who's one of the greatest trial lawyers in the region. I had two of the most high-powered attorneys in the universe dealing with a flooded 2007 Honda Accord. <laughs> you think that's not some juice? My insurance company said, we don't care. <laughs> clause is the clause. And, and some, a lot of you who are attorneys, you know that facts are stubborn things. And contracts are stubborn things. And they said, no, you've got to repair it. So I left it at Honda and didn't do a thing. They kept calling me from Schofield, do you, do you want us to start the repair? No, I don't want you to start the repair. 
I don't want to be repaired. I don't want to go away. I don't want to think about it. Listen, do you think all that time I didn't kick myself? I said to myself, why didn't I listen to the meteorologist? Why did I get out that night? I'm saying stupid, stupid, stupid. But it didn't change a thing with my car. You think I didn't you think I didn't kick myself about that split second where I had that moment, that decision to decide, do I keep it in drive and drive into the floodwaters, or do I back up and go to higher ground? I relived that moment dozens of times and said, oh, if only what was I thinking, Hoover, you crazy. But all that time, my car sat dead at the Honda dealership with the guy calling me, saying, Mark, do you want us to start repair on this? And my insurance company saying, that's the only option you got. And finally, I became a grown-up, and I called him, and I said, go ahead and start the repair. As I look back on that moment, it is bracketed by two things. First of all, it is bracketed by those moments of decision when I decided to get out of the house and to drive into the floodwaters. It's bracketed on one end with that. It's bracketed on the other end by Carfax. <laughs> that parentheses, that set of parentheses explains my situation. Let's leave that aside for a moment. We're in a series right now that we call Best Practices. If you were here last week, and I apologize for the review, I'll try to get it out in just a matter of seconds here. But best practices is a whole new nomenclature. It's a whole new terminology that has come to replace an old nomenclature. Best practices has come to replace in, 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 in education, in government, and especially in business. Best practices is a terminology that has come to replace standard operating procedure. If you were here last week, I, I share with you how many of you have uh, asked a question about why you do something where you work and, you, and it doesn't anything to the bottom line. It's dumb. It's it's. You know, it, it just it wears everybody down. And you ask the question, why do we do this? It's just standard operating procedure. It's just SOP. Why, do we, why is this SOP? We don't know how it's SOP. It's just always been SOP. And, and I think that in our tight economy, there have been entities who have said, we just can't keep doing the same dumb things because it's SOP. We have got to look at our practices, and we've got to test them. We've got to field test them. And on top of that, we have to bring them to the place where they're evidence-based, and we do what we do, not because it's SOP, but we do what we do because it's best practices. And I know you hear the term. I hear the term. I love the term. I love it. When I listen to our accountants that say, you can do this if you want to, but this is best practices. And we say, okay, we want to do best practices. We want best practices. When we, deal with the, when we deal with the business, I love it when the business leader that we deal with says, you can do this if you want to, but this is best practices. I love that. I don't want to just do good. I don't want to do better. I want best. But you know, of course, I don't know enough about business to lecture on that, and it would waste our time if I did. I don't know enough about, I don't want to know about government, really, to truth be told, except I want to be a good citizen. I want to exercise my, my wisdom and rights as, as a citizen to vote. But at the end of the day, what concerns me more than anything else is your life and my life because God has called me to speak truth into your life and to, and to speak that same truth and learn that truth in my own personal life. And here's what I'm concerned about. After 35 years of working with people, I am convinced that most people live their life according to standard operating procedures. What they eat, what they drink, how they use their time, how they use their money, how they approach sex. A lot of it's just SOP. We don't know why we do what we do. We just learned it from our peers. We just watched it on television. It's seen on TV. And now we have SOP. And it's not helping us. In fact, it's hurting us. And we're looking at our lives at 20 or 25 or 30 or 50 or 70. We're looking at our lives and say, saying to ourselves, how did I get here? And we've gotten where we are because of SOP. And then I keep thinking about this. What if we could learn best practices? 
And when we do what we do, and somebody asks us, are we like I have to do all the time with myself? If we ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? We can say, well, we do it because it's field tested, it's evidence-based, it's best practices. I think that's what the Bible is all about. In fact, the Bible says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. It may be perfectly legal, but it may not be best. God is saying there's a whole range of choices you can make. And it's not going to send you to hell to make a bad choice. And the Bible says it may be perfectly legal, but it may not be best. For five weeks, I want to give you what I think are best practices that can change your life. And I want to give you five of the best, or I think there's going to be a sequel to this series next year because I really had 16 of these, and I'm having to pare them down to five. But I want to give you, well, last week, if you were here, you know, we talked about living smart. Pick your road, stay on the road, finish strong. Today, I want to give you what I consider to be best practice number two, and that is prepare instead of repair. Prepare instead of repair. Now, you know where I was going with that story. Because if I had prepared and not left the house that night, or if I had prepared by backing up and going to higher roads, I would not have had the situation in which I had to repair my car. And I, I know you pick up on that instantly. It is superior, it is smarter to prepare than it is to repair. We'll get there in a few minutes, but could I just stop for a moment and say this to all of us who are listening today. Before you get there, repair if you need to. Because I can be talking to people today and say, okay, Mark, I get it. It's better to prepare than repair. So I have this dysfunction and all these broken things in my life. I just want them to go away. I'm just going to cut loose everything in my life and start over again. No, repair if you need to. Back to my car. I drove over to the Honda dealership several times and I looked at it and I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to think about it. But that was, there was a moment where I had to say, okay, go ahead and repair it. I still remember making that call. And I'm glad I did, because he did a marvelous job. If you saw him, like, I drove it for two more years. My son, Stephen Paul, drives it now. If you saw that car, you would never know it's been in a flood. It drives fine. It doesn't smell bad. They have all, you know, new carpet and everything. It was a good repair. It was a smart thing to repair. So some of us are going to look at circumstances in our life that need repair, relationships, marriages, friendships, careers, educations. We're going to look at stuff in our life where there's we made a mistake. We didn't prepare like we should. I want to say this to you. Repair it if you need to. In fact, here's the best way I can think of to say this. If preparing is no longer an option, repairing becomes the best practice. Repair if you need to. And if, you know, because here's the thing. Some of you are going to have to repair a marriage. Some of you are going to have to repair a friendship. I, I hope because see, forgive me for breaking this, but I think so many of us, we, we either tend to be preparers and every once in a while we have to repair something, or we tend to be repairers. We sort of wing it all the time and we say, well, if I screw up, I can fix it up. But, but let me just say this to you. If you need to repair, repair. I want to give you some of the best advice I think anyone could ever give anyone who needs to repair something. Because some of us instantly, we know our relationship, we need to repair we need to fix our education because we got off track. We've got stuff in our career where we didn't prepare, and now people are looking at us kind of funny. When you have to repair, two things. Number one, be honest with yourself and be honest with the other people who are going to have to be involved in your repair. What I've learned about people, and I'm going to go to that latter part first. What I've learned about people is that many people will be patient with you. 
If you will man up or woman up and say, I should have prepared, I didn't prepare, I get it now, I'm going to repair, and I know it's going to cause you to have to go through some difficulty, but I get it. Let me tell you why, for the two reasons why it's important for you to be honest about repairing when you need to repair. Number one, repairing communicates value. If you have a, if you have, like for instance, if you have to repair your marriage, when you show up before your wife and say, listen, I should have prepared better as a husband, but I didn't. And I know that right now things are not good, but I'm going to have to repair, but I'm going to do everything I can to repair, and I'm going to be honest with you. What you communicate to your wife at that moment is our marriage is important. See, when I didn't want to repair my car, I was saying it doesn't have any value to me anymore. I want it to be a total loss. But at the moment when I communicated, you know what, I need to repair, I was saying this car still has value. That's the power of honesty in that scenario. Some of us need to repair relationships with our kids. I have found that kids, and this is one of the things I've taught parents for years, I've taught parents that kids are remarkably resilient when parents will, will man up a woman up and be honest and say, you know what, I should have prepared better to be a parent. I should have prepared better to help you with, with life, but I didn't, and I'm sorry, and I get it, but I'm manning up, I'm womaning up, and I'm saying, I need to be honest with you, I've got to repair my relationship with you as a dad or as a mom. The second thing that it communicates is competency. You know, this is the thing that we worry. One of the reasons why people give up on a marriage is they just think, well, my husband's never going to change. He's just not competent. I mean, here's the thing. I, I've used a car a lot, but if you take your car to a repair shop and you got a problem and you take it again and again and again and again and they don't get it and they keep giving you the car back with the same problem, after a while you say, I'm not taking my car back there anymore because they're not competent. When I man up about what I need to repair, I have communicated, number one, there is value here, and number two, I've communicated, I'm competent. I know I made a mistake. I know I didn't prepare like I should, but I get it now. Oh, this is an old story. I'm sorry for telling it. But in my mid-20s, I was bivocational. I not only served at church, but I also taught in, a, taught in a large private school. And for those of you who hear me talk all the time, you never believe this, but I actually taught English once. Can you believe that? English. But most of the time, I, 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 taught, I, I taught a religious course, I taught, taught a Bible course. And, and, but I still remember one of the years I was teaching, I just taught like four hours a day. I, I remember I had a teacher in a, in a room next to me. She was a 10th grade English teacher. And she had been a success in business, had gone back to school. I think she'd earned her PhD, definitely a master's degree in education. But I think she'd earned a PhD in education, and she wanted to spend the latter part of her career as a teacher. But those of you who are in educators, you know that some people are naturals and some people are not. And she was not. Everything about teaching was uphill to her. And finally, she threw up her hands right about this time of the year. At the beginning of the second semester, she threw up her hands in her sophomore English class and quit. And I still remember the headmaster called me and he said, Mark, I hate to ask you if you would do this. I need a tremendous favor from you. Is there any way in the world you would take this sophomore English class? I'd never even taught sophomore English. But I walked into that class on the first day, and I, and, then I, and I didn't even have any time to prepare. I mean, it was just like an hour before he asked me to take class because the lady just walked off campus. I walked into the class. I said, what Dickens have you? I hadn't read any Dickens. I said, what Shakespeare? Have you read Julius Caesar? No, they hadn't read Julius Caesar. They hadn't read any Shakespeare. I asked them about grammar. They hadn't done any grammar. I could not figure out what they had spent a whole semester doing. And finally, here's what I said to that class. I said, guys, I owe you a huge apology. Your parents are spending a fortune for you to go to this school. And you need to be ready for college, and you need to have what you should have as a sophomore in an English class. And I said, here's what I'm, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for. I have got to accomplish with you 
in one semester what you should have accomplished in two semesters. And I'm going to drive you unmercifully. And I'm sorry that I have to do that. But it's important for you to be ready for college. And I remember saying that to them. And I thought, I wonder how these sophomores are going to react to that because I'm just asking them to do something very difficult. And I assure you, I did exactly what I said. We fit in a whole year of sophomore English in one semester. But I never will forget, I went over to my desk at the end of class and the kids were exiting the classroom. And I heard one boy say to another, we have a real teacher now. See, all I'm saying to you is this, repair if you need to. But if you need to repair, man up, woman up, and be honest and say, I should have prepared, but I didn't. And I'm going to ask for your patience at this time. But there are problems with repairing, though. I mean, now we're going to kind of turn the corner and say it's, it's better to prepare than repair. There are problems with repairing. First of all, repairing brands with lost value. That's why we, that's why we look at Carfax before we buy a car, right? We want to know, is the car in a bad accident? Did some fool drive through floodwaters? <laughs> that's what Carfax is for. And, and here's the thing. Yeah, the repair may be excellent. I mean, you buy a car that's, that's, that's branded that way, it could still be a fine car. But what Carfax says is, and here's what a repair says, it's not what it could have been if somebody had committed more time and energy to prepare. A repaired marriage is a great thing, but so much better not to have to repair. A repaired friendship is a great thing, but it's so much better for it not to be repaired because there's always a patch on it that says it's not what it could have been. And then secondly, repairing takes more, um, uh, let me go to the second thing. Repairing means somebody went through a painful or difficult experience. I see this car every day of my life. It is in my driveway. My son Stephen drives it. And it's fine now. If you saw it, you would never know I've been through a flood. But every time I see that car, I see that car in flood water. And I think about the scars that are on my sake because of what happened that night. <laughs> repair if you need to. But repairing means somebody went through a difficult, painful experience. Number three, repairing takes more time and energy than preparing. It would have taken me less than a second that night watching television to decide I'm not getting out tonight. Think about that. Think how quick I could have made that decision. Less than a second. I'm not getting out. At that moment when I'm in drive headed for the floodwaters there, it would have taken me less than a minute to put it in reverse, back my car up, and drive it on higher ground. All that change would have taken less than a minute. Repairing took weeks. I had to go through the pain of the experience, and it took thousands of dollars to repair. Do you know what the painful part of this is? By the time it finally came to the full payment of what it actually cost, it would have been totaled. <laughs> So repair if you need to, but it's far better to prepare than repair. So let's talk about preparing for the next 15 minutes. If you'll give me 15 minutes, I want to talk to you about the essentials of what, a, what preparation is. First of all, think about the word pre prepare. The prefix pre means before. In repair, the prefix re means again. Just think about the simple etymology of those two words. Prepare means before you get there, Repair means I have to do it again. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 24, verse 27. Do your planning before building your house. It's as simple as that, before. That's preparation. Preparation is before. Do your planning before you build your house. Our, our scripture today, I think Jesus had to be thinking about that proverb when he told this story. Let's read it together. This is in Luke 6. When someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it, it is like a person building a house who digs deep 
and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the flood waters that's painful to read. When the flood waters rise, <laughs> I wish Jesus could have used a different illustration. <laughs> when the flood waters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it's well built. But if any, anyone who, who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against the house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. ruins. All right, let's go through Jesus' story real quick because um, I think there's some things that we can pick up pretty quickly just on the surface. I noticed in Jesus' story, everybody builds a house. I mean, the guy with the foundation, the guy who built on the sand, they both built a house. Everybody builds a house. Everybody wants success. I mean, whether we're talking about team of athletes or we're talking about people working for a living, students, marriage, married people, parents, all of us want success. That's the American way. And I just think it's human. Everybody builds a house. I, 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 I've never met anybody who wasn't really maladjusted who didn't want success. I've never had anybody come to me and say, Mark, I'm, I would like to have a meeting with you because I'd like to figure out how to screw up my life six different ways. <laughs> no, we, we all want success. So everybody built a house, number one. Number two, I noticed the flood hit both builders. The, the guy who built, dug down, digged his basement and his foundation and built his house, the flood hit him. And the flood hit the guy who built his house on the sand. And, and I just want to say this to all of us here today. Problems, disasters, issues are going to come to you. Whether you're the most devoted Christ follower or you're the most rock-rib rock non-theist. All of us are going to have problems. Flood's going to come to everybody. Number three, outcomes are very different. <laughs> I think, and, and this is for those of us who grew up in traditional church. I think there's a misnomer out there that those of us who really try to follow God... God is somehow going to just come down and take his eraser and erase consequences when we do something stupid. Well, let me tell you something. I do believe God loves me. I have felt his love every day of my life. I really believe God has poured out his special favor on me because God has allowed me precious opportunities that makes me think that he loves me very much. But as much as God loves me, when I drove into the floodwaters that night, he did not send his angel down and say, pick up Mark's Honda and just set it up above the floodwaters. I drove into that water just as quick as an atheist would have. <laughs> I don't even want to know what God said to the angels at that moment. Probably that's stupid. <laughs> I love him, but that was stupid. All I'm trying to tell you is, here's the thing, even if God loves you, and even if you're God's child, the outcomes were different. One guy's house was matchsticks, the other guy's house stood firm. And then the fourth thing that I noticed about this story, and guys, I know that so many of you drive so far to be part of New Spring, this is my favorite point of the whole talk today, and I'm trying to learn it, because as somebody with ADHD, I struggle with preparation. This is what I want to learn. I'd never thought about this until I was getting ready for this message. I was thinking about the morning after. Think about that for a moment. Because here's the deal. When we hear Jesus' story, we sort of go to that moment where one house collapses and one house stands. I'd like to roll forward 12 hours to the next morning when the sun is out. Because builder number two has a job to do. He's got to rebuild his house. That's what he's got to think about that day. The sun is out. There's no flood anymore. But he's got to think about building his house. This is the point that I love so much. Builder number one just moves on with the day. There, the sun is out. There are things to do. There are things to accomplish. His house is fine. He rolls right on. 
This is what I want to grasp about preparation because I know the flood is coming to my life. And, and I'm at the age where I want every day to count. I want to maximize every opportunity. I don't want to be a smidgen less than I could be. And I don't want to have to spend my life having to go back and redo, 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 rebuild, 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 when if I had prepared, I could have moved on with the affairs of the day. So what do you think? Do you want to be a preparer or a repairer? I, I, I know what you think. You say, okay, Mark, I, I want to prepare. I don't know if you're into taking notes. I don't like to take notes. But if you are into taking notes, I want to give you the essentials of good planning. And these are not mine. These are Jesus's. So these are, these are good enough to, to write on your hand if you have to. And then not wash your hand. I mean, it's, this is just really good. I mean, I, I, these might even be good enough to tattoo on yourself. And then it was some 12 year olds going to go home and said, Mark said I should have a tattoo. So, <laughs> let me give you the essentials of good preparation from Jesus. Number one, think about this. He anticipated the future. Builder number one anticipated. You see, when Jesus finally explained his story, think about, the, think about Jesus' explanation. He said it all came down to one thing. It came down to foundations. The guy with the foundation, his house stood. The guy with no foundation, his house was matchsticks. So the guy, builder number one, who dug deep and, and laid his house on a rock, he focused on what could happen in the lifespan of a house. You see what I'm saying? I mean, he didn't just see the day he was building. He thought about what could happen in the lifespan of the house. I want you to think about the word anticipate for a moment. If you are taking notes, just write down the word anticipate. Because the word anticipate comes from two Latin words. The prefix anti means before, it comes from the word, the second word is capere, which means to grasp or to seize. So to anticipate is to grasp it before. In other words, when he was building his house, he grasped beforehand what could happen. Building number two, he wasn't grasping anything. <laughs> he was thinking about his living room and his kitchen appliances, his home theater system. Builder number one was imagining a 100-year flood. He grasped it beforehand. Now let me pull over to the side of the road and talk to those of you gals and guys who are like me. Because there are a lot of us who chew our fingernails down to the quick. And we worry a lot about life. And we say, Mark, I'm all over this. I got this down. I worry about stuff before it happens. I'm not talking about worrying. See, builder number one was not a warrior. In fact, preparation is what kept him from worrying. Many of us worry about things that never happen. That's not grasping it beforehand. Here, here's the beauty of what I see in builder number one. He knew there were things he couldn't control. Worry tends to be about stuff we can't control. He knew he couldn't stop floods from coming. He knew he couldn't stop storms from coming. So he didn't sit down and worried about, worry about it. He got a shovel and he started digging and he dug till he hit rock. There's a world of difference between anticipating, grasping beforehand, and worrying. While I'm easing back into the flow of the message, could I just say something to us? Most of us understand investing money that it takes money to make money. Man, you know, if you don't put any skin in the game, you're not going to make any money. I mean, here's the deal. If you want to inve make money, you've got to invest in something. It takes money to start a business. It takes money to invest. We know that. We get that. Americans get that very much. It takes money to make money. But do we understand the investment of time in preparation? Many of us will invest money to make money, but we try to wing it when it comes to preparation. I like, <laughs> I like the way the message 
paraphrases Proverbs 27, 12. A prudent person sees trouble coming. He anticipates. He grasps it. And he sees trouble coming and ducks. A simpleton walks in blindly and is clobbered. Pretty good. Okay. What, did, what was the first thing that we, we learned in the essentials of good preparation? It's important to anticipate, to grasp it before. And see, builder two, grasp the importance of a foundation the day after the storm. When his house was lying in matchsticks, he, he grasped it. He got it. I mean, and I've been there so many times before. I was certainly there that moment when my car was dead in the water. I grasped the importance of not driving in. I, I, I got it. Unfortunately, it wasn't before. Builder number one got it before he got there. How good are you and I at anticipating the future and getting it before it happens? Here's the second essential of a great plan. Builder number one understood the success of what people could see would ultimately be determined by what people could not see. In other words, the day after the storm, what people could see, one house was standing, one house was not. The outcome of what people could see was determined by what people could not see. And that's true about your life and my life. Now, before we get there, Let me make the point very clearly that on a sunny day before the storm hit, both houses probably looked the same. In fact, when builder number one was digging deep, trying to lay his house on a rock, I'm sure builder number two looked at him and thought he was crazy. My my neighbor is nuts. Look at all the money and time and energy he's spending in digging digging below ground. Nobody's ever going to see that. Man, look at my house. I got all this cool stuff you see on HGTV. I got a great house. So on a sunny day, they look the same. And here's the deal. If you were to be able to draw a line between the people in this room who are the prepares and the people who are repairs, we would probably look the same on a sunny day. But let life test us, which it will for all of us. Here's the deal. I, I am convinced, and you cannot back me off of this. I am convinced that every person listening to my voice in this worship center, in the overflow, on the internet, on television, I am convinced that every person listening here has great things to do. You have God-sized assignments. There's extraordinary things that God wants to do in your life and my life. Someday, you're going to be called to center stage. Someday, you're going to be in a key moment of destiny in which your outcome is going to be at stake and the outcome probably of other people. At some moment, life is going to test you. At whatever it is that you're called to do, you're going to be summoned to center stage and people are going to be watching you. And heaven is going to be watching you. I want to tell you that who you are at that moment, what people see at that moment, is going to be determined by what you do to prepare for that moment that nobody will ever see. I remember after a particularly sad failure in Lincoln's life, when it looked like his life was in shambles, he made this statement that is one of the most famous quotes in, in history. Lincoln said, I will study and prepare myself and someday my chance will come. One business leader put it this way as he talked about, or she talked about, modern America. The most normal and natural thing for people to do is to try to get by without preparation. Instead of taking the time and making the effort to be ready for their chance when it comes, they fool around, listen to the radio, watch television, and then they try to wing it. Since we're all transparent, just about everyone can see through just about everyone else. The person who is unprepared simply looks incompetent and foolish. In fact, one, one business leader, one of the greatest motivational speakers of all time said this. He said, if you're not prepared when your moment comes, 
you'll look like a fool. See, what I love about builder number one was he understood that eventually people were going to look at his house after the storm. And so he put all kinds of energy into what people could not see. And what I mean by that is your relationship with God and your, your care about who you are as a person, not the facade that everybody sees, but who you really are. That's what he put his energy in. Well, I'm going to be careful about saying this because I, I don't want to go too far with this. But I think that's one of the reasons why reality shows are so popular today. People are just winging it, but they become stars. And I think it communicates a message to our generation that really all you have to do is just wing it and have a camera on you and you can be a, a star. That's, that's not how life works. Builder number one, he anticipated, he grasped it beforehand. Builder number one understood that eventually what people could see would be determined by what he did with people, what they could not see. Before I give you the third one, let me, let me tell you this. You could be a non-theist and do number one and number two. I know people that don't even believe in God who are good at grasping things before it happened. I'm reading Steve Jobs' biography right now. Steve does not, did not believe the things about Jesus that you and I believe, but when it comes to grasping ahead of time to where technology was going, he did. You gotta hand it to him. And as far as a person understanding that they have to develop the part of themselves that nobody is ever gonna see so that when they're called to center stage, they're able to do something that's memorable, I think you wouldn't even have to be a Christ follower to understand the wisdom of that. But this third one, this all-important third essential of good preparation you have to be a Christ follower for because it involves listening to God before you prepare. That's what Jesus' story was about. Let me, let me read to you what he said right before he talked about the two builders. In Luke chapter 6, he said, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. Did you hear the word listen there? The, the builder who built his house on the rock, who dug down deep, Jesus said, he made it tantamount or equal to someone who listens to God. If you want, if you want to make great plans, seize the future, seize the, see, grasp it before it happens. Prepare the part of you that nobody is going to see. And then there's all that, that all important moment where you just say, okay, God, I need to hear from you. Let me give you, at this moment, I want you just to move Mark completely out of the way. I want you to hear God's lips to your ears as God whispers to you four things about your plans. Here is the first thing God wants to whisper into your ear about preparing for the future. Pray. Ask. When I, I think about this all the time. When I plan I, I, and when I prepare, I put everything into it because I want to be a success and I want to grasp it before difficulty comes. But I also know a couple things about Mark. I know I have limited ability and I cannot see the future. The great thing about asking God about your plans is you're inviting the one in who can do anything and you're inviting the one in who knows when the floods are coming. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your way to the Lord, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Second thing God whispers into your ear and my ear is God says, get good advice. In other words, bring people in who are wise people, who have been down the same road before. In Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 28, 18, make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. 
it's getting harder because I'm getting older, but one of the things I've done throughout my career is I've, I've cultivated friends who are 20 years older than I who've been successful where I want to be successful, and they still think young. I've tried to cultivate those people in my life so that whenever I had to make plans, I could sit down with these people and bounce it off of them because their experience and their vigor and their youth and their intensity would sync up with me. And oftentimes they would spot issues before I would spot them. And God is saying, number one, ask me for help. Number two, get good counsel. And number three, God whispers into your, give your plans the honor check. In other words, ask yourself about your plan, about your preparation. Is there something that stinks about your plan? Is, does somebody have to lose so that you can win? Um, is there something about your plan that you'd be embarrassed if someone spoke it back to you? Could innocent people be turned into victims? I mean, just go through it and give it the honor check. One of the greatest statements in the Bible is Isaiah 32, verse 8. It says, the, the noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds, he stands. It could just as easily say the noble woman makes noble plans, and by noble deeds, she stands. Go to the end of the verse first. By noble deeds, he or she stands. In other words, at the end of whatever happens, they're still standing. That's what I, that's what I want to be at the end of my life. That's what I want to be in the middle of my life. I just want to still be in the game. Well, how do you stay in the game? How are you still standing? And the Bible says good people make good plans which lead to good deeds, and they stand by those good deeds. And it's not talking about getting into heaven here. This is just talking about a life that works. Noble people make noble plans. Noble people don't make plans to screw people over. Noble plans don't make plans to take advantage of somebody. Noble people don't make noble plans to cheat somebody. Noble people don't make noble, they don't make plans where somebody's got to lose. Noble people make noble plans. By noble deeds, they stand. Give your plans the honor check. And the fourth thing that I think God would whisper in your ear is, God would whisper, employ the golden rule of planning, which is this. Proverbs 21, 31. Do your best. Prepare for the worst. Expect God to give victory. Trust God to give victory. This is, a, this is what I got to learn. I mean, look at my fingernails. I bite them down to the quick because I'm a warrior. You know what God is trying to tell me? Mark, do your best. Plan, let all your contingencies be for the worst. But when you've done your preparation, go to sleep and leave the rest of it to me. That is the golden rule of planning. Do your best, plan for the worst, and trust God. This and I'm through. I hope that you choose to be a preparer. Repair if you need to, but I hope that you choose to be a preparer. But guys, you can prepare for everything else in your life and not prepare for one thing and your life be a complete wreck. You need to prepare. There was a prophet named Amos who was a migrant farm worker when God called him to preach. One of the greatest prophets of all time. And in Amos 4.13, he gave us this simple line, prepare to meet your God. Are you prepared? Do you seize beforehand what it means to meet God? Because someday every man, every woman, every kid, we're all going to stand before God and we're going to face him and he's going to talk to us about our lives. And so my question is, are you prepared for that moment? Are you, are you going to wing it? Because every once in a while somebody says, well, when I stand before God, I'm going to ask him why do bad things happen to good people. No, you're not going to ask him then. Read Isaiah 6. 
When I stand before God, I'm going to tell him there are all kinds of ways. And why couldn't we figure out a way to heaven? No, 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 no. Not the God I read about in the Bible. You and I are going to stand before him. I had one professor when I was in college that used to do something that I was grateful for at the time. His review was always the exam. On the day when he gave us the review, question by question, he was going to give us every question on the test. And if you sat there and you copied down every question and every answer, I mean, you were able just to sail through. I think I had a 100-point average in his class. Would you like to know the question that's going to be asked at the moment when you stand before God? Because God gives you the exam ahead of time. There's only one question that God is going to ask you. It's not were you religious, were you part of a church, were you baptized, Did you, were you confirmed? That's one reason I don't like religion. Religion is man's attempt to jump through hoops to appease God. That's not the story of the Bible. See, here's the thing. God knows we're imperfect. Perfection is what it would take to be good enough to go to heaven. He knows we can't put it in reverse and back out of the floodwaters. So God did something so that you and I could have a relationship with him. God moved all of our sin off the table, all of our dysfunction, and all of our problems. He sent his son Jesus into the world, God and human at the same time. And Jesus lived the life that you and I can't live. And then he died on a cross, and the blood that came out of his body was the currency that paid for all of our sins. God allowed Jesus to take our place. We had the WSU baseball team here at 930. And, and I thought about this idea as they, they were here. I thought, what God did is he sent Jesus to pinch hit and to pinch run for us so that we would accept what he did for us just to receive him, to let him be our substitute. That God would forgive us of all of our sins. See, God wanted to move all our dysfunction and sin off the table so that he could look across the table from us and love us with unconditional love. Just one question on the exam. What did you do? With my son. What did you do with Jesus? That's why the Bible says in the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See? Just one question. You know, you could prepare to meet God right now. And I'm going to do something. I mean, on the spur of the moment here. But I'm going to pray a prayer. And these aren't magic words, but these are words that just reach out by faith to God. And if you, if you want to pray with me, you can do it. Again, God's not listening for any kind of formula. He's just listening for your heart. I'm going to pray a prayer that, that accepts Jesus. If you want to pray with me, you can. I'll pray it slowly because the important thing is what you mean, not what you say, but what you mean. Let's pray together. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't undo it. And I can't even change by myself. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood was a currency that paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Today, by faith, I get off my road and I get on your road. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. In Jesus' name I pray.